All right. Well, the few, the proud, the not-so-big Dodger fans, I guess. Um, And it's actually my favorite study, and we're going to have the smallest audience. So congratulations. I really labored over this one, uh, and it's blessed me tremendously, and I hope it does the same for you. Uh, This one actually was birthed out of a conversation I had this week with um, a friend, a very dear friend, who uh, the two of us were kind of unified together in the way we perceived a number of things, and we've we've started to kind of do this. And uh, he holds to a view that I don't hold to, and there's multiple views in relation to, uh, and I have to put on my pastor's hat here, uh, there's multiple views to look at the Constitution from uh, a biblical perspective. And there are those in Christendom, and I call it evangelical Christendom, that believe the Constitution to not be um, a, a proper document and that it puts the sovereignty uh, in the hands of the people as opposed to, to God. And nothing takes sovereignty from God. But we've, we've covered that. Uh, we understand that they recognize, the founders recognize Genesis 1. They understand this idea to subdue is this idea to govern. And the dominion over, you know, in Genesis 1 is all laid out there. We can go through the Noahic covenant, but I don't want to spend time doing that. But suffice it to say, this debate has been going on for a long, long time. And uh, ever since the Protestant Reformation, which uh, I think yesterday was the 500th uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, um, Wittenberg door, 95 Thesis that he put up there to break away from the Catholic Church, which started this idea of the development of civil government through the Protestant um, movement. And then, and then our founders, as we've covered through the Geneva Bible and the rest, set all these principles up. But as we were talking, one of the things we've noticed is um, uh, slavery, which we'll get to when we, we get into the Constitution. Uh, there was a three-fifths compromise and this desire to want to uh, have slavery just dissipate and go away. And then later through the course of American history, uh, there were changes made in opposition to the way the Constitution was established that brought us to this point of the Civil War. And yet the Constitution survived the Civil War. It's a document that survived all kinds of challenges. But one of the things, if you contrast the two, Great Britain ended uh, slavery uh, 30 years or more before the United States did. And it was a man by the name of William Wilberforce, without a shot being fired, labored over 50 years in the British Parliament to end slavery. And he did it through incrementalism and working towards that goal and saw it end. And he did it through a, a brilliant method and a number of ways and then changed the the the, um, the 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 moral concern of the entire nation. Um, fascinating study. If you ever want to study somebody, he's one of my heroes, William Wilberforce. You contra- contrast that with a guy by the name of William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist, and it was it was abol- you know abolition or nothing. They they weren't there was no incrementalism. Uh, slavery had to stop. That's all there is to it. Done deal. And then that ushered us into the Civil War. And, of course, we lost 650,000 people in a field of battle. Slavery was ended, uh, and it was done uh, in a different method. And both of these men were, quote-unquote, Christians, and both of these men held to the Scriptures, and both of these men had different approaches on on how to, through the, the government itself, uh, end an evil that that the world at one point considered legal, and even the Supreme Court had established it as being legal. We know in America today, one of the issues that is facing us, um, and, and the room will be divided, and I don't bring it up to divide the room, I'm just stating it as an obvious, that abortion is one of those things where people look at it and they say, do we dispose of it, and this is the Christian mindset, do we dispose of it incrementally or we do it by abolition only, abolition of human abortion? And so you have these two contrasting sides. And so I was contending 
uh, with my friend and going through this. And his is one of, of almost violence and, and intensity. And, and mine is, I, I, I'm moved by William Wilberforce. Um, and so you see these two contrasting ideas. Another person to consider in, in the course of history is a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian pastor who actually participated in an assassination attempt against Hitler and participated in a secret society and lied. And you think, how can a Christian pastor lie and that be theologically acceptable? And he would go through issues like the Hebrew midwives and Rahab and a number of other things. And he said, I don't expect others to hold to this, but I wanted to throw a wrench into the gear of the system that was killing mankind. And, and so you can see that, that through the course of time, we're all trying to wrap our mind around how we're supposed to operate, how we're supposed to bless a culture and be engaged in that culture. And this is a question all of us are having. And, and at the end, when we do the, the question and answer period, I'll qualify what I'm looking for. But ultimately, we can find, and as I, I've said before, you give me five minutes, I can give you a thousand things wrong with local government. Uh, county government, state government, and federal government, one of the things we want to look for in our time of question and answer is more solutions. We want to be solution-minded. Uh, and this is that idea of reasoning and, and communicating and dialoguing and debating. And this is what I was doing with that, that friend today, going through these issues with him. And it was intense. He's a man that is moved by his passion. Uh, he has a love for the unborn, and nothing will stop him in relation to that. And, and, and you look at that, now passion is one of those things that we've been covering that the Constitution itself was established to, to take passion, which we're all driven by. We all have passions, desires, right, wants. But they have to be placed in this idea of prudence. They have to be put in this place of, of patience and debate, right? So that that's what the Constitution was established for with this separation of powers, that we would have to take time to come to this place of reason. Though we have the passion, uh, we have to have conviction, and conviction out, outweighs passion. Passion will dissipate, conviction always stays. We all got that? Yeah. So here's one of the things that's fascinating to me about the Constitution itself. Lots of people think that the founding of the American government was somewhat crass, and the reason why you have scholars that believe that the founding of the American government was somewhat crass is that it understands that people in general are selfish and it sets them off against each other so that they can't hurt each other. We want to we keep them separated so they don't hurt each other. And, and there is, there is a, a color of truth in that statement that, that the founders realized that we have to separate these powers, we have to create debate. And it means that if we're going to be self-governed as a nation uh, and hold this sovereignty that we've been speaking of, we the people, and we're going to hold that sovereignty, we need to be good people. Did you hear that? Good people. Let, let me read to you a verse. This is Proverbs. I'll put on my pastor hat. When the righteous are in authority, when the virtuous are in authority, when the good are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, when a wicked man is the sovereign, the people groan. So you want a good ruler so that you rejoice as opposed to a bad ruler. And we've, we've taken a look at the, the idea of North and South Korea, right? We've, we've done that. Are you all tracking me so far? So how does the Constitution, and, and let me go to the first slide here. Uh, the, the title for tonight, when I turn it on and then I press the button, it'll be a magnificent uh, accomplishment. The necessity of virtue in the Constitution. How does the Constitution help help produce people of virtue? And does it? Does the, is the Constitution established in such a way as to produce virtue in, in its people? 
Uh, now, we know that the Constitution protects our rights and our freedoms, but it's also interested, very much so, it's also interested in our, listen, character. It's very concerned with our character. This, this Constitution was established to protect our rights and our freedoms, but it's also very interested in our character. So let's think for a minute. Um, in regards to our founders, and we can, we can think of a few that immediately jump into our mind, before they were our founders, and they were the founders of this political system of a constitutional republic, what did they do? George Washington, for example, what did he do? A farmer? What else did he do before the, 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 the establishment of the Constitution? He was a general. He fought a war. He was a warrior, right? He not only fought a war, he won a war. He was a warrior. He was a conqueror. How about Alexander Hamilton? Does anyone know about him? He was 19 years old in the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Anyone know what he did? Aide de camp to General George Washington. You know what? Well done. He was one of the aides de camp to General George Washington. So they served together. And actually, he wanted to fight. And he kept pressing Washington, give me the opportunity not to go and do your directives and take your missives and your letters to governors and, and the like and other generals. I want to fight. And finally, Washington gave him command over a battalion. And he was at Yorktown at the surrender of the British and fought. And he was the one that took out one of the major uh, positions of the British that caused them, along with the French, to fight to, to bring the British to their knees and the surrender of Yorktown, which brought about the end of the war. So these two guys fought. That's what they did before they sat down and wrote this out. We know that Alexander Hamilton uh, was also the author of the majority of what? Anyone born on their birthday? We do this all the time. The Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers. He stood in direct opposition to Madison and also to Jefferson, uh, the Democratic, Democrat Republicans. He fought in opposition to them. He wanted a, a stronger centralized government. A lot of people don't like Hamilton. Uh, they, they feel as though he changed this whole idea. And they, they like the Constitution or uh, the, uh, the Continental Congress, and they didn't want this new government. And it was here that they started to convene. And one of the things that caused them to convene was this need for, for dealing with what many believe was the Shays' Rebellion. Uh, Daniel Shays was, uh, uh, he had fought in major battles in Revolutionary War. He was a farmer. When he came back, they had, they had levied taxes so high upon him that he was losing everything. And he had fought a war and didn't have any freedom and lost everything. And so he mustered uh, a, a series of troops. They were going to, to fight. And the, the Continental Congress, because they didn't have an executive branch, couldn't muster a military to stop them. They were able to do it, but this is one of the reasons why they, they had, they had uh, struggled and wanted to rewrite and come up with a better form of government as opposed to the Continental Congress. They wanted to do this constitution. So let's look at this. Washington and Hamilton were warriors. They, were, they conquered they fought a war and won, not just fought a war and won, they fought a war against the greatest power on the face of the earth and won. And now they're going to get to do something very specific. They're going to get to rule, right? Isn't that what happens after you win? You get to be in charge, hello? So they're going to get to rule, and they're going to get to be the king in the court. And if he's his aide to camp, he's going to be on the court, isn't he? And who of anyone is going to be the king? Obviously, everybody called for King George, Washington. And they did. 
1776, and at the conclusion of the Battle of Yorktown until the, con- uh, the, the Constitutional Convention, there were calls for, for, for George Washington to be the king. And here's what's fascinating. King George III had lost the new world. And there wasn't ever going to be a new world unless we go to another planet. He had lost the new world, and he, and, and, and he had lost this war, and he was pressed by one of his subjects, one of his ministers, to, to attend or to call for a, a peace accord, um, a peace agreement, to settle the conflict and, and call it quits. And I, I want to show you something that's fascinating about this. Um, look at this. Anyone ever heard of Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus? <laughs> Quinn, that's a new name for you. Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus. Have you all seen uh, the movie uh, Gladiator? That character was developed, I believe, from this man. You know what's interesting about him? Despite his old age, he worked his own small farm until an invasion prompted his fellow citizens to call for his leadership. He came from his plow to assume complete control over the state, but upon achieving a swift victory, he relinquished his power and returned to his farm. His success and immediate resignation of near absolute authority has been cited as an example of outstanding leadership by exemplifying, ready, service to the greater good, civic virtue, and lack of personal ambition and modesty. And so as a result of this, at the end of the Revolutionary War, um, all those that fought in the Revolutionary War in the Continental Army, along with the French as well, started an organization which is actually the, the longest-running organization in uh, American history, and it's called the Society of Cincinnatus, or the Society of Cincinnati. It still exists today. It's a men's-only organization. They don't have uh, uh, an opposite one for women, like the, the women's order, like you have sons of the American Revolution, daughters of the American Revolution. This is a ser- just a men's order, and today they, they commit themselves, even though none of them have fought in the Revolutionary War, those guys are long dead, they commit themselves to just the education of the populace of the, civil, or, excuse me, of the Revolutionary War itself. And, uh, and here's what's fascinating. At the conclusion of the Battle of Yorktown, the British have lost, and the minister comes to King George, and he says, we've got to sign this peace accord. And, and I'll just walk you through it. King George III was asked to call for a peace conference after the Battle of Yorktown. He responded by saying, George Washington will not know how to be king, and the people will want me back. Stop for a minute and look at me, if you would, so we don't lose track. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here. Here we go. Come on. There we go. He says he won't know how to be king. Isn't that interesting, his assumption? You've conquered, now you get to be king. That's the only mindset of the previous governments in the history of the world. You've conquered, now you get to be king. And what happens here is his ministry replies, I understand that Washington has resigned his office and gone home. He says this to the king, and the king responds. He says, if that is true, he's the greatest man in the world. He couldn't fathom how somebody could give up power. And where do they get this from? Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus. This is an aspect of virtue, that you surrender power. You give it away. Unless a man loses his life, he won't gain it, is one of the scriptures. It's this idea of service for the greater good of mankind. And he literally, he was a farmer. Somebody over here said he was a farmer. Then he was a warrior. And what did he do after the war? Went back to farming. That's what he did. He went back to farming. And it was so stunning to King George, that he didn't know what to do. 
And now that this new government had to be set up in some way that it wouldn't collapse on its own weight, and you have these folks coming back and they have given up power, they now see what's happened with this Continental Congress and Shays' Rebellion, right? And, and, and the newspapers of the time were saying that this Order of Cincinnati or Order of Cincinnatus was an aristocratic association. And so George Washington was so insulted by that that he refused to attend the general meeting of this order because he didn't want to be seen as that. He's just a farmer. So he gives that up and they're calling for a constitutional convention. He doesn't want to attend. And then Shays' Rebellion occurs. It was Madison who rode to Mount Vernon and said, look, you've got to participate. Nobody's going to gather without you there. Why do you think he was so important to chair? And let me ask this question. <laughs> I already gave you the answer. Who chaired the, con- the Constitutional Convention? George Washington. And why was it so important to have him chair the Constitutional Convention? I'm sorry? The respect that they had for him. What, why did they respect him? You got, I'm sorry? He's a leader. So is King George. Yeah. He didn't want to be the leader. So he's apathetic. Yeah, back there. Didn't insist upon power. I'm looking for something deeper here. Okay, that's that's working, but everybody wants power. You okay here? There we go. That's what I was looking for. I'll give you the answers next time. He was a man of virtue. It was his character that they knew they could trust him, and they could trust him to establish this and to to be the chairman of the Constitutional Convention. Um, This is St. Augustine, City of God. He says, Thus a good man, though a slave, is free, but a wicked man, though a king, is a slave. For he serves not not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. I'm not going to ask this question. I will, but I don't want anyone to raise their hands. Has anyone ever been addicted to anything? Some people are addicted to baseball. I can tell by the attendance. Has anyone ever been addicted to anything? I have. And I know what it's like to have something as my master that does nothing but destroy me. And the ancients were very wise. They just looked at at these things that mastered them, and they gave them names, and they called them gods. Bacchus was the god of alcohol. Aphrodite was the goddess of sensuality or sex, which would be today pornography. And we just add each of these little gods and goddesses. And you can see in Acts 17 when Paul is on the Areopagus and he's speaking to the multitude of gods and they even have a statue to the unknown God. He begins to speak about that. And so every man has a vice. Every man has a vice. And as you see this, um, you, you, you want to you, you realize, and, and let's read it again. Thus a good man, though a slave, is free, but a wicked man, though a king, is a slave He serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. What did King George III want? He wanted George Washington's failure so that the people would have him back. He wanted to, it's it's what Augustine, we'll cover it later, it's what Augustine called the the, uh, libido dominandi, the lust for power. Now watch this. Leadership based in self-interest, personal fancy, vanity, and personal power drives what St. Augustine called the libido dominandi, the lust for domination for personal power. 
Did George Washington have that? He stepped down. He didn't even want to go to the Constitutional Convention. If it wasn't for Shays' Rebellion, if it wasn't for James Madison, he wouldn't have done it. He was content. So he stepped down, and this here, this libido dominandi, his was for the sake of others as opposed to himself. It wasn't a lust for power. And that's why King George III said, if this is true, he is the, he's the, the finest man in the world. The city of God, and this is the contrast with Augustine. He says the city of God, and he, he wrote the city of God, city of man. The city of God stands in marked contrast to the city of man. The two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Rather than libido dominandi, the attitude of my way or no way, which marks the city of man. You know, the, they always say that the, the theme song in hell is, is Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And it's this idea that I, I'm going to, my way or nothing, and if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Shut up and do as you're told and like it. I'm in charge here, right? But then you contrast that with a virtuous man or woman who gives that away and serves humanity, those are the people we're drawn to, not the selfish. Aristotle, great philosopher, he had come up with a book of ethics. It's one of the finest ever written. And he said, there's two virtues, and I want to show you those. He said, um, there, excuse me, two types of virtue in his book on ethics. He said, the doing virtues and the thinking virtues. And in the doing virtues, he, he speaks of courage and moderation. So in courage, there's pain, and in moderation, there's pleasure. So in, in courage... You're going to go forward, and it's going to cause you pain, right? If, if you're going to move forward, it's going to cause pain. So you've got to have the courage because we're oftentimes paralyzed by what? What's going to happen to us if we do that? Anyone? Hello? So we're going to be paralyzed by, and, and it's that courage. We know we're supposed to do it, but we're paralyzed by fear. Fear of what? Reprisal? Hello? The unknown. The unknown. Anything that's going to cause us pain, moderation is this idea of pleasure. I mean, we're all driven by desire, yes, passions. And so we wake up in the morning and we're on a diet because we're having the battle of the bulge. And, and we look in the refrigerator and there's last night's pizza and I love cold pizza and I would prefer that over any food on the face of the earth and I'm strange that way. And yet, you know, my wife wants to make me a protein shake with a minimal amount of, you know, carbohydrates and keep it low and watch me thin out. And I'm like, pizza, love you. She not here, pizza, right? I have a passion for the food, but if it's not, if it's not controlled by moderation, then I'm going to get fat. Now, my, my initial inclination is I love that food. I want it. But if you debate it and you consider it and you think about it and you reason with it, I want to live longer so I'll be here for my kids and my grandkids so that I'm healthy and I'm able to study and, and, and do the things necessary to community. And I'm, a, I'm awake at a council meeting instead of a carbohydrate nap, right? Are you tracking me? And so these are the doing virtues and you're motivated by what you want. Everybody's motivated by what you want. I was talking to a fellow who had just come out of prison and he's, he's, he went through drug addiction, and now he's struggling a little bit with alcohol, which is another drug. He says, I'm doing well on the other drug side, but I'm still struggling with alcohol. I said, if you could dream, because you just came out of prison, you now have a felony, you can't get a job. If you could dream, if you could dream, and I'm going to meet with him Friday. I said, if you could dream, what do you want? What would make you happy? What's something that drives you? Because you obviously know this is a dead end. What would make you happy? 
He said, well, if I could get a, a Camaro, and he said the year, I think 65 Camaro. I said, okay, so you get a 65 Camaro. I know a man who owns 12 of them. He's worth $6 billion, and he can tell you right now, it doesn't bring him happiness. So go beyond that. Help me here. He goes, wow. Because you, you get that thing, and it's still not there. So we're driven by passions, but those passions are important because it gets us up in the morning. Hello? And someone's like, I don't have anything to live for. Well, you know, any passion, right? And, and so this idea that these doing virtues are mo- motivated by what you want, those are important. We need to be motivated to do something. But then he says, the thinking virtues, you must reason how to achieve the virtuous result. The virtue is the right disposition to those things you want. So, for example, I have a hunger. I'm hungry. It's in the morning. And I've got two options. One will give me a quick fix, and the other will keep me alive longer. And I have to debate this every morning. I know that when I, personally as a minister, if I have time in the evening and in the morning in the scriptures, the day's better. But the first thing I want to grab is my phone and look at, you know, the news. Anybody? I, maybe it's just me. So we have these things that drive us and, and, and move us. But the question is, the thinking virtues. You're going to do, but you better think before you do. Because if you don't think before you do, it ends up being ugly. I'll give you an example. Take a look at this guy. General George Armstrong Custer. He graduated last in his class at West Point. And on his website, it says that he graduated 34th in his class. There was only 34 graduates. (laughs) By the admission of all of his commanding officers, he was a goof-off who infuriated his superiors. He led 210 men against 2,000 Lakota Sioux and Cheyenne warriors. And the idea was, hey, diddle-diddle right up the middle. Yeah? Now he had a passion for what? He had courage. There was going to be pain in there. Glory. Glory. What else? What's moving him? Another star on his shoulder? Maybe being able to run for president? Did he care about the 210 men? He's driven by a passion. This is motivating him to go into battle where he's going to face pain. This is courage. And this is a doing virtue, but without a thinking virtue, he's an idiot. Because if you don't apply the thinking virtue to the doing virtue, what could be beautiful and virtuous and a blessing to culture and society ends up being miserable. They all died. Save but for one Indian who backed out early because he knew this was a waste of time. And he was able to give the directive and point it out. And they just were massacred. Look at this. We're all driven by wants, desires, and passions, but we must apply conviction, reason, and debate to achieve virtue. The Constitution by its structure is devised to engender the correct correct cooperation between reason and passion accomplished by the separation of powers. This is how they develop in the citizenry virtue. How is it? By the separation of powers. What does the separation of powers do? First of all, it removes the sovereign from running the government, and then it separates the powers that we give to them. But then for anything to happen, you've got a bicameral legislature so that the House has to pass the bill, then it goes up to the Senate, and then it goes back down to the House for the ratification. And they debate it, and they argue it, and they go through the committee, and then they've got to sign it, and then, then the president can veto it, and, this is, and it's, it's endless. 
right? But what does it do? It creates ideologically opposing people, somebody who is a Christian reconstructionist and somebody like myself who doesn't hold to that, where we have a civil debate and pull each other to the center and we reason with one another. Are you tracking me? And instead of just throwing bombs over the wall in your defense and calling them terrible, you're engaging in culture and reasoning together and you're participating in government. And by participating in government as the sovereign and our responsibility to participate in government, we must have virtue. And it calls us to virtue because are we going to be able to have a civil debate if our children don't understand how to get along with somebody else and understand how to be polite and understand how, how to you know, honor those in authority and how to respect your elders and how to tell the truth and not to steal and not to lie and not to cheat. If, if we don't teach any of these morals, we have a nation that has no ability. And this is, this is what our constitution established by the separation of powers. It was intended to have people dialogue and debate so that the passions would give way to the convictions. And in this, people would come to a better understanding of what would be the best way to rule, and the people would be blessed. Tracking me? Yes? I know it's Wednesday. I'm just as tired as you are. And so with this idea, I've given you the answer, but pay attention. What does James Madison say the most important thing about the Constitution and the chief way it will protect our liberties? What is the most important thing about the Constitution and the chief way it will protect our liberties? What did he say it was? I gave you the answer. Separation of powers. He even understood this, as did the founders. This separation of power would would engender to the, the community this idea of putting aside passion for the, for the purpose of conviction and to debate and to reason. And that's why he said the separation of powers was the most important thing to protect our liberties. Separation of powers. This is how it works. Thus, ambition is counteracted by ambition as a safeguard. Everybody has passions. The left has a passion. The right has a passion. Now we come together and we start working that out. Well, you're, you, you neglect this. Well, you neglect this. Well, you don't do this. Well, what about this? Okay, well, what if we do this? Okay, well, what about if we do this? And whatever they say, and then we, there it is. And that is this idea of people working in civil, civic body politic to reason together. Reason by debate allows our passions to find virtue. Listen, nobody has cornered the market on virtue. Right? You know, you look at folks that some of them talk about, I'm a strict constitutionalist, but, but you, can, you can look at forms of government that have nothing to do with the constitution and yet we're clueless to that, but we stand by it so vehemently. We, we look at immigration, the debate there. We, we look at anything that, that, that brings us to this place of struggle. But if virtuous people don't participate in government and we abdicate our responsibility to engage in it, that voice is lost. And, and all you are is a whiner and a complainer. But to engage and to educate and to participate in the restructuring of this idea of virtue personally in your life and in that of your community, all of a sudden, as George Washington said, if we become better people, we become happier people. 
And so the Constitution was designed to create character in its citizens. Every choice we make is a combination of reasoning and desire. Passions are not to be banished. Passions motivate us. It is vital that you want the virtuous thing. So you have a passion, which is good. That's the doing thing. But it must be attached to the thinking thing. Right? And how does that work in the separation of powers? We debate and convictions take precedent over passions. Here we go. Virtue. And this is out of uh, Webster's Dictionary, the, the oldest U.S. dictionary. This would be the closest definition to what our founders considered virtue. Moral goodness, the practice of moral duties and the abstaining from vice, or conformity of life and conversion to the moral law, the practice of moral duties merely from motives of convenience or from compulsion or from regard to reputation, is virtue as distinct from religion. The practice of moral duties from sincere love to God and his laws is virtue and religion. Uh, We're watching this in the United States of America right now. Uh, And it's fascinating to me to watch this. In in the the decline of our culture where we do this libido dominandi, and this is where we get the idea of libido, the sexual drive. And there's there's a fascinating work on it that one of the ways to destroy culture is to bring in the sexual libido, that this is the drive, and really sex is the domination of a culture. And then, you know, what what happened? You got William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Colony, who writes the Mayflower Compact for the, you know, furtherance of the Christian gospel, direct descendants. We we see this elderly couple who've been married over 50 years, and they have two sons, and the the husband and the wife are praying that the oldest son would be a missionary. And the oldest son goes off, uh, enlists in the military, and he's engaged, and while he's away, his fiancée commits adultery on him, and he's so upset by that after they marry and she tells him the truth that they divorce after 10 years and instead of being a missionary he starts what is called playboy it was hugh hefner direct descendant of william bradford so playboy starts and it's a sexual revolution and we got this libido dominati and 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 men are now women are now objects and men are just playing the game yep and we elevate them, and he's an icon, and, and we've got the Playboy bunny, and you know Hollywood is driven towards that, and everything is about that because sex sells, and it reduces the virtue of mankind, and everybody's participating, and the, the darkest kept secrets in all of Hollywood nowadays that are now coming to the surface are what? Sex. Sexual harassment, pedophilia, rape. rape. And, and this, this moral high ground, all of a sudden, what they're decrying and destroying by saying, you know, you people, they're, they're all of a sudden being exposed for the duplicity of their statement. Now, here's the question. Is a hypocrite someone who sets a standard and fails to achieve it? Or, or somebody who desires a standard and, and, and fails to achieve it? Or is a hypocrite someone who knows the standard and deliberately steers people away for the sake of personal gain? Libido dominandi. Everyone's a hypocrite. We all have standards. Has anyone ever set a standard for themselves and they failed to achieve it? You're a goal setter. You have, you have this desire to want to do the right thing and we fail. Has anyone failed to do the right thing? Yeah. Welcome to the human race. But it still means that we're going to the higher nature of who we are. We're seeking that higher virtue. And that's why this government was designed so that we would participate in this idea of debating these things. And so this was a definition of virtue. And then you have our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. 
It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other John Adams. Why would he say that? He said it because he understood that if we don't put in check our vices, we have no ability to find the virtuous center and what's best for the people. If there's no standard, then who sets the standard? And this is why the Supreme Court has now become the most dominant sector of the three branches. They legislate from the bench and they establish what they think, by judicial fiat, what is right and what is wrong. Even though they've labored in the legislature to make the law, they rewrite the law. Californians vote, they pass it, one judge rewrites it. But the populace has no idea what's missing And what's missing is an active sovereign to participate in the virtue of the nation. Personal virtue, local virtue, county, state, and federal virtue. It begins, if you want to know where all this begins, it begins right where you're seated. Remember this. When the righteous, the sovereign, are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked sovereign rules, the people groan. If we are a moral people, we'll have a good nation. If we're an immoral people, sovereign, the people will groan. Is anyone thrilled with what happened today? Did anyone go to the gas station? What happened? 12 cents more gallon overnight. And then when you get your car bill, it's going to be a $50 attachment or $25 attachment to that. And by 2020, if you don't have no emission, you're going to get $150 whack on you. $5.2 billion in taxes passed and nobody said anything. Nobody. Nothing in the acorn, nothing stated by our assembly person. No, the thing we're arguing about is, I don't know. And they're they're literally taking $50 million out of our city and giving us $4 million back. What are they doing with the other $46 million, $45 million, $44 million, $46 million? What are they doing with it? Whatever it is, we're groaning. Can I get an amen on that? Does anybody think we need more taxes? And here's the question. So many taxes, yet so high a debt. What does the moral aspect of debt, according to the scriptures, have no debt but to love? What does debt do? It makes us a slave to the lender. So now every day we go to work, we're just paying debt. We're not getting anything for it. We're leveraging our children's future. We're spending it. And we don't decry that. Um, I think that's the last slide I have. It's 740. Let me read this to you. I'm putting on my pastor's hat, 2 Timothy 1. Bear with me. I'm, I, my whole heart's desire is not to be preachy, but this is something that moved the founders, and they, they quoted scripture more than any other source. So I'm not stepping out of line when staying to the documents themselves. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 5, says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, To self-control, perseverance. Don't quit. 
To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. And yet we're barren. There's no money left in the cupboard. And the people are burdened and levied to the max. And yet where is the voice of reason? Well, they're sitting in a room complaining. Or, better yet, as I was talking with my sister in the Lord, uh, they're engaged and they're facing it every day and they want to respond. And they they have the courage to respond. But if they act without prudence, it's going to be a custard's last stand. So you have to be wise in how you're going to respond. Have courage. Certainly have courage. But to that courage, have discernment. And do things in a very wise way. As I sit on the council, has anyone ever sat through a meeting and heard me call for prayer from the dais? That, that, that would be the, probably the dumbest thing I could do. What is my role there? I've been elected to do the will of the people. It's given me a mantle to operate in the capacity that I have. But I have to operate, yes, I have courage. But I have to apply not just the doing virtue, but the thinking virtue. I have to do that every single day. Our school board members have to do that. They have courage, but they have to apply the thinking virtue. Otherwise, it's Custer's last stand. What we want to be beautiful will end up being a massacre. And it'll just be dumb. And if we're going to win by incrementalism with this idea of applying people to a a place where they're going to have virtue, we have to be very thoughtful. Now, how do you know how to do the right thing? Where do you get your moral foundation from? What is your standard? And in the absence of a standard and a vacuum you create by your unwillingness to train your children and to train your grandchildren and to participate and to study, to show yourself approved and to educate yourself and to apply these things... What do you create? A vacuum. A vacuum for what? Somebody else's standard. And how do we debate and find that center ground of what virtue is? If we don't tell them, how will they know? And if we don't know, how do we teach it? And you have to be prepared in season and out of season to have a subtle way to dialogue with folks. Otherwise, again, it's Custer's last stand. I get opportunities every week to engage in somebody ideologically opposed and do it in such a way as to have an effect on them. I'll tell you one of the ways that it works. Get to know about them. People don't so much want to know about you, they want you to know about them. Ask them questions. Ask them about their family. Ask them about their life. Spend time with them. Oh, you don't understand who I work with. It doesn't matter. You don't understand who I work with. Oh, you work at a church. No, I work in government. And as I get to know them, I have a heart for them. And now they start to trust, and they should because I trust them. And they open up and they say, let's dialogue. What is that? Civics, civility. This is what our constitution established for a people to participate in. Or you can let your passions take over and do Custer's last stand. Just be pissed and just run Run into the thick of it and see how that works. 
And all you're going to leave is carnage. But if you're educated and prepared, you're going to be effective. 7.45, I'm finished. It's time for question and answer. Yes. Oh, by the way, let me qualify. Question and answer. Like I said earlier, you give me five minutes, I'll give you a thousand things wrong with local, county, state, and federal government. All right? I've been all over the country. I've heard it all. I know it all in the sense of, you know, complaints. Okay? I got that. And for the most part, I'm probably in full agreement with you. This purpose is we're looking for actuary points of solutions. Okay? Now, if you have a general question about the study, bring it up. And if you have a solution, tell us. Because as we apply this virtue, we're going to work together to be able to accomplish it locally as we throw our starfish back, right? Okay, with that said, yes. So with the tax debate taking part tomorrow, it's my guess that virtue will succumb to self-interest. Probably so. And why is that? Why the question or the, the comment is with the tax debate happening tomorrow, his um, belief is that that self-interest will take precedent over virtue. <laughs> and we're all going, mm-hmm. Now, my question to you is, and this is really a good time. This is for us. Why? What is the most, according to Hamilton, what is the most dangerous branch of the government? Legislature. Why? They hold the purse strings, but why else? They're the only ones we elect. How many people have written your Congress member about the tax debate? Some of you are saying, well, it's worthless. Listen, I, the only letters I typically see in the acorn are the opposite ideology of what I hold to. I'm looking, and it happens periodically. It's the exception, not the rule, that somebody speaks in accordance with what I hold to. But I have to tell you, reading those week in and week out has an effect on me. So you say you have no effect. How many people want to write letters? How many people will? You see? But yes, tomorrow probably will be the case. But who's holding them accountable? Who's the sovereign? And what are we doing about it? Okay. Back here, question, yes? Rob, I was uh, impressed when you started out saying several years ago, the bean patch. And I had a hard time with that for a little while. And then you, you ran for the Senate. State Assembly, yeah. Tuesday night fights. Peace in the valley. Okay, so his comment was uh, he couldn't understand my principle of the bean patch. And I repeat this for people listening online. 
Uh, Jim, by the way, Jim is a World War II veteran pilot, and those are rare. And I want you to live forever because we want to keep honoring you. Uh, so, so with this idea with the bean patch, the idea is I can't change, for the most part, county, state, and federal, so I'm going to focus right here. Now, I did run for state assembly, and it was an exercise, I thought, in futility, but I understood, and I learned. the. There's always a lesson in everything. So I learned the political landscape. Then I ran for uh, the city council, won by 52 votes. And my joke is, yeah, you know what they call somebody who wins by 52 votes? The winner. Uh, and uh, John F. Kennedy said that. So, so as I won, now I'm elected with now 4,000 votes, and the mayor does say that. Now, does that mean that we're, we're all in cahoots and we all have our meetings together and we all violate the Brown Act? No, it doesn't. We're ideologically opposed in many areas, but we have this debate, and when we look at it, we say, okay, I don't agree with this, and I don't agree with that, but for the sake of unanimity, we'll vote for this, but I'm opposed to that. And I can count on one hand, maybe two, the times that I voted in opposition, because it was just a violation of my estimation of the Constitution. I couldn't do it because I swore to defend it. And so with this relationship that we're building, these things start to improve and get better. So it's incremental approach. It's the best we can do, but at least we're doing something, right? Yes. Okay, good. Um, time for a couple more? Yeah, Kim? Thomas Jefferson talked about this idea of trusting the people because they'll swing to the right and swing to the left. And, swing to, it just, and through debate, eventually get to what he said. And that's, that's really what, you're, what he's talking about is what you're also talking about. So Kim's comment is Jefferson pointed out, trust the people because whether they're left or right, depending on where they're swinging, they're, if they debate it and they, they put conviction over passion, they'll ultimately come to a proper answer. Um, Jefferson was really committed to states' rights. Hamilton, uh, th- though he was the one who broke the, the tie in the Electoral College and ended up getting Jefferson elected and he was ideologically opposed, he still thought him the better candidate because he had better character, even though he was ideologically opposed, which is fascinating for anyone who's opposed to the Federalist Papers. So you look at these two guys, and he wanted states' rights. Hamilton wanted a a more centralized government, yet they both understood, especially with Article 4, they both understood that if the the states were this petri dish, in a sense, to to develop... um, the, the will of the people as, as they would debate in that capacity. And you just keep pushing government further down and today's dog catchers, tomorrow's Congress member. But if we're not developing the farm team and we're not participating locally, we're going to end up with what we've achieved by apathy. We create the monster and we decry its existence, right? Okay. A couple more. Do we want to end early? Cause you guys want to go to the Dodger? Yes. Back here.
Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the comment was that uh, she campaigned for me in the state assembly. I lost. She wrote a letter pointing out to the fact that people who didn't participate in the election and didn't vote uh, don't have this ability to complain because they, they didn't participate in the electoral process. And, and yeah, I was disappointed, too. And actually, uh, I beat my opponent in every city but Oxnard. And the reason why I lost the election is because more people in Thousand Oaks didn't vote. It didn't offset the plus 21 Democrat in Oxnard. And it was people who thought she would be moderate. And we got sanctuary state. And we've got, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so people are starting to realize, why didn't I? But you know what? In all fairness... I was a political neophyte. There was a lot I didn't know. I'm cutting my teeth now. Uh, she had participated in almost three terms in office as a council member. I'm far more equipped now to be able to participate in government than I, I have ever ever been. I now understand it more. So good things come of it. But I will say this. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. We got to be careful. Remember the complaint thing? I can do that too. Here's, here's, the, here's the thing I want to leave you with. You said nobody reads your letter. And you, you wrote it and everybody that you sent birthday cards to and all these things. I teach, and, and this is, I put a lot more effort into Wednesday nights. I put an, a copious amount of effort not to dismiss your letter. It was, it was, I read it. I was thankful. But it encouraged me though. Trust me. But I, I do this every week. Nobody writes me a letter. And when they do, and I'm not asking for letters, please understand. <laughs> when they do, I'm grateful, but it's not necessary. But I know this, every one of you heard it. And, and I know that ultimately, if it's good, it resonates. It's like, a, it's like a pebble in a pond. It got there. It got there. They just weren't sure how to respond, many of them. A lot of them probably didn't read it, but a lot of them did. And you'll be surprised. Your effort was not in vain. It is never in vain. Thank you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Well, trust me, I read everything that was positive because I, you want to talk about being disappointed? <laughs> All right. Time for one more question. Yes, back here. I'm sorry, I reject Christian reconstruction what? Now, let me explain, let me, let me explain that. I, I'm not a Gary North supporter. Uh, I do like some of Gary DeMar's stuff. Um, I, I don't believe in Christian anarchy at all. Um, this idea of incrementalism, not for this. For, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I use this in the assembly debate. Let's say that somebody comes to me, uh, a bill put forward and says, uh, we're going to use government funding to build uh, five Planned Parenthoods in California. And, but attached to the bill is... Um, um, every child under the age of 18 must have parental consent um, b- before they can engage in, in an abortion. And, 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 uh, and everyone who's going to get an abortion has to see a picture of the fetus before the abortion occurs. I would vote for that. Now, that's incrementalism. People would say, oh, he voted for the funding with state funds of five Planned Parenthood. It, it, it's incrementalism. It's the brilliance of William Wilberforce. Just study what he did. So it's going to take passion, but also it's going to require the thinking virtue as well. So, no, I, I'm not an incrementalism in that I'm going to allow evil to creep in. But the idea is you have to apply. Because if you're just going to run against a wall and all you're going to do is, you know, the, it's, it's kind of the division that you see with Gary North and Gary DeMar. It's a Rush Dooney and, and Francis Schaefer. I, I'm, I'm, not on the, I'm, I'm not over there. That's not me. I'm not that guy. And so I hope that helps. Okay? Uh, back there, yeah? 
Yep. Yes, there, there are, there, there are, the question is, the comment first and the question was second. The comment was, uh, he had read in the Founder's Bible that it was required teaching at elementary level, the Constitution, as a required course it was in American history. And then your question was, are there uh, materials that are age appropriate to teach the Constitution today? There are, and, and they're available. Now, the next question is, how do we get our children access to those? That's where we've got to put on our thinking caps. We've got the, the doing virtue, but we also have to have the thinking virtue. So let's come up with an idea on how to do that, right? So let's start thinking. Because we're courageous. Don't be afraid, but also do it wisely. All right, last question. Okay, if it's good, take us out. Yeah. And it seems to me that these are, this is an attempt to teach leadership to students. Yep. And the schools accept it. They're allowed on campus. It seems to me that a little bit of Constitution might be taught as part of leadership training. This is a great way to put on the thinking virtue because there's courage to it, because you're taking an organization like Kiwanis, who has key clubs. You have a local group, not all national will apply to it, but if you have a leadership that's open to it to teach the Constitution through these key clubs, you can use a, a service organization to accomplish that. But first you have to be a member and a participant in that organization. I am a failing member of the Kiwanis because I haven't been in forever because these Wednesday nights are draining and I, I want to get back. I'm not a Rotarian, although I've received their largest award. I'm just telling you that. <clears throat> Anyways... But if you're a member of the Rotary, if you're a member of a homeowners association, you're a member of any of these things, you're a member of a PTA, participate and start to step in with this idea. That is exactly, that is the exact idea of, of the doing virtue attached with the thinking virtue. Brilliant. Brilliant. What did he say as he said it? He said, use a service organization similar to Kiwanis that has key club organizations that are already established in high schools to start to teach civics in those key club organizations. Ah, uh, it's eight o'clock. Mel, I said that was the last one. You didn't, you're, you're, you're Marine. You should, you should understand orders. Yes. I just want an advertisement. Schools aren't the only source of this. Right. Boy Scouts of America. Boy Scouts of America. They're accepting girls now. They have citizenship in the community, the nation. Yep. Uh, I, I'm being honored, and so is my wife, uh, with the, the, the county council for Boy Scouts uh, because of what we did with Troop 711. And, and this is exactly how we're stepping in and making a difference. And uh, some of the Eagle Scouts are here. They, 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 they're participating, and I'm moved by it, and it's awesome. So it's 8 o'clock, and I'm finished. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week in the Lord.